0: Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz.
1: Hello and welcome once again to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Dalitz and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hi Richard. Hey Matt, we are still here. We are still doing the
0: Science of Psychotherapy podcast and I tell you what, I look forward to it every time it comes around Uh, uh, and uh, we've got some some great fun today. Uh, We do. We do indeed. We're talking to Sam... Visnik in the USA in California. Can you tell us a bit about
1: Sam? Absolutely. So Sam Visnik has spent his life studying the fundamental aspects of human health with a focus on movement and clinical massage therapy. Sam has studied dozens of systems and methodologies for uncovering the root cause of aches and pains, along with postural and movement issues. Pain science, the art and science of hands-on soft tissue, massage techniques, myofacial release, and coaching movement. Essential in his practice, yeah. Doing doing lots of stuff, this overall stuff. But he's written a nifty book as well. What's the title? It's the title of this great yeah. book? Yes, it's in an e-book, and the title is "Why Didn't My Doctor Tell Me That." Yeah, I'm interested to hear this, some
0: of the stuff he's going he's gonna to say about that because he really really catchy title, but it draws you in and he looks like he really knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, so so we'll go to see him. But, of course, you know, we're doing these fabulous podcasts, which we know you love because you, you, you're downloading them. Mm-hmm. So if you'd like to support us doing this, uh, this fabulous work that we love putting out on, on the airways for free as often as we can, please come in to the net and look at subscribing with us for our learning opportunities, learning all over the shop. uh, Just everything that you could imagine is, is in the Science of Psychotherapy Academy.
1: Absolutely, yes. We'd love for you to be part of the tribe, chat with us, learn lots of stuff. Um, it's it's a great place to hang out if you're a psychotherapist.
0: And we're beginning to upload our new documentaries too. Oh, yeah. Right? The Gut-Brain Axis has mm-hmm. just gone on. We're starting to finish our work on the autism one. Uh, we're hoping we'll get these up uh, regularly throughout the year. So constantly growing material. Yep. Anyway, enough of us. How about Sam? Sam Visnick in the
1: States. Let's go talk to him. Sam Visnick, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. So great to connect with you.
2: Yes, thank you, gentlemen. I'm very excited to be here in chat today. Yes, Richard, here we're very excited
0: to have you here. Uh, as people will know, my wife is uh, works in the, the the massage therapy area, but also that that area of health and pain, which is a really important mm. area. We've 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 mentioned your book anyway. There's just a mile of stuff, uh, and we want to get into that. You've been working with this area of of pain and difficulty uh, where people have not. Been finding the best way to resolution. What brought you around? What was the the thinking and the work process and the time frame that you did all this work in?
2: Well, I would say that you know I'm now entering, I think, into my twentieth year in doing this work, and and I feel like I was I was very lucky that early on in my career, as you know, I started off my uh, profession as being a fitness trainer. And, uh, you know, for me, I worked in a in a setting where it was a, a large gym chain and, you know, you're going to get lots of people with aches and pains. I think it very it became very uh, aware of early on and obvious that you had to start learning to work around these things. And people would take one of two approaches, either. Number one, they would say, I don't feel comfortable with that. And they would avoid these kinds of issues. Or number two, the, the path that I took, I said, hey, you know, bring it on. I'll learn how to to deal with these things. And you know, as I started committing to doing that, because I'm, I'm definitely somebody I'm sure you'll find that is likes puzzles. You know, you bring me puzzles, I want to solve things, and those became puzzles to me. And I wasn't satisfied with most of the results. I mean, early on, it was great having this awareness that you could help people uh, who have chronic aches and pains by getting them to move around these issues, and then they would get better. But there was always that point where they would, you know, with certain types of issues that I would only get so far with people. And you have to learn more. And to me, the puzzle was never complete. Fast forward 20 years of going into lots of different areas and eventually uh, over those years and early on, I was exposed to this as well. But it takes time to kind of learn the depth of knowledge that you need to deal with what we would call these biopsychosocial types of problems, especially when it comes to pain that... um, You have to kind of get your feet wet in each of these areas just to learn techniques or tools or technologies to help kind of integrate them into practice so you can really see how things work. And that has made me a really well-rounded practitioner, obviously in a mechanical realm of massage therapy and and fitness work and working with people. That is going to be my home base. Um, But over years, I've gotten far more complex conditions and individuals come to me with these conditions, such as fibromyalgia and so forth, which are are stretching me, because there's so many different things that are necessary to know in order to help these people, and I'm committed to the craft and learning those things. So that has really expanded me into different areas, and, and we'll talk about with um, you know nutrition work, with hypnotherapy, which I've, I've long term been an advocate of, and really developing systems. I would say to try to integrate all of these works in, in a way where you can make great therapeutic progress and success with the least amount of overwhelm to the, to the client or the patient, whatever word you prefer and, you know, make it appear magical, you know, and that's really what I'm after. And I'm sure that will be after that for another 60 years, you know, praying that that's how long my career is. Um, but continuing to kind of develop more into that. And I, I think I'm really interested now as the, Uh, information out there is becoming more widely available and practitioners are becoming so much more multidisciplinary, or at least understanding the importance of that. How do you actually make it work in practice? And I think that's kind of what I I always like to focus on is how I am doing that and um, just putting that information out there for all of us to noodle with and and to bring about new ideas.
1: Yeah, and that's the track that we're all on. aren't We this multidisciplinary, you know, search because we're working with this complex system, and we have to know a little about everything. It seems. So, how did you go about learning the different areas you mentioned? You know, the biopsychosocial areas that you need to know about. Did you do formal training? Did you? Is it all sort of self-learning? How did you go about it?
2: Well, I was introduced um, in the beginning with a, a practitioner who was already in the field doing a lot of that kind of work, which is pretty amazing that he was so far ahead of his time. as a guy named Paul Czech, and mm-hmm. what he was doing back, and this was probably around um, you know mid '90s, but I didn't ex- ex- get exposed until the late '90s was you know, looking at the body as an expansive whole, like this wasn't happening even in the late 80s and 90s. There were some practitioners who were definitely forward thinkers, but everything was about isolation. You know, if you had a back problem, they were only looking at the muscles of the back or a shoulder problem. It was only about the shoulder, but really teaching. Yes, you got to deal with these things, but step back and look at how everything is related. And, you know, a lot of practitioners, you know, it takes time for these ideas to kind of permeate Uh, therapeutic realms, like you know, there have been doctors like uh, Dr. Carol Levitt, who had been talking about for a long time, he who is only treating the area of pain will be forever lost. This concept that dysfunction in areas that weren't moving so well were oftentimes contributing to the area where the complaints were. But if you only focus on the area where the complaints are, you're missing the bigger picture. And I was exposed to that idea very early on. I feel very grateful for that and always Yes, identifying and working with the area where the complaint is or what's going on, but also making sure that I always step back from that kind of meta frame and thinking about the larger context in which things are occurring. Now we can do that mm-hmm. from the mechanical stuff, which I learned a lot of you know, exercise programming, rehabilitative exercise, post-rehabilitative exercise. So I had to learn about what physical therapists were doing while people were in PT. I had to learn a lot more about exercises in which, number one, they may not have had time to get to while person was in PT because of limitations in insurance and so forth, but also how to pick up from PT so that I didn't end up... These clients are oftentimes in lots of therapeutic uh, ways are stuck in gaps where they get done with the medical system in a certain way, but then you have practitioners that are not well-versed in this, so the patient is left with a gap here that they cannot oftentimes overcome. So if somebody has low back pain and they exit physical therapy and they're technically stable, they're discharged, but yet they shouldn't really be exercising on their own without some guidance. And hiring a personal trainer might be that trainer just doesn't know enough about this kind of condition. In order to help them bridge these things, they oftentimes will have an increased likelihood of getting injured or having setbacks and so forth. So being a gap practitioner, and this gap exists in virtually every therapeutic realm that appears to me. So uh, my mentor had, you know, not only educated me on that, and one of the first things that he said to do is, you need to learn to. You're not going to be really good and well-rounded as a as a as a practitioner unless you learn to put your hands on people. And you need a license to do that. So the easiest thing to me was massage therapy. Um, I think because at the time, just of my mindset, and you wouldn't know it probably from my personality now, but I, I couldn't sit still for five minutes to sit in school. So I was already doing what I wanted to do. I just needed to be able to kind of like carve out a scope of practice that allowed me to do the things that I wanted to do And anything that was outside of that, just find professional associations to work with other people. So massage therapy was a big deal for me. I went through that. And obviously, I had to go through the the traditional coursework. But at the time, I was learning about specific modalities that were related to advanced massage techniques and clinical massage so that I could apply those to people who had pain. Uh, So I did a lot of that work. And obviously, over the years, I've progressively done lots and lots of different manual therapy. Most of my stuff is self-learning at this point. Um, but going in different directions depending upon information that I would find, and another area that was uh, evolving a lot when I first started was the field of functional medicine, which was uh, when uh, more holistic-based practitioners like naturopaths and so forth were running hormone panels, saliva tests, on talking about the adrenal glands and all of this other kind of stuff, which was kind of delving into this round uh, level of what we would call the subclinical round uh, round of health issues. They're not overtly diagnosable. People would say, I'm tired all the time. Um, I have a hard time falling asleep, staying asleep, or I have low energy. But yet the doctor cleared them. All their lab tests were normal, et cetera. So now we're, we're starting to see there's something here to be done, although you know that field was very evolving. And I worked with a medical doctor who I kind of latched on to, who was really well-known in the, in the sports kind of realm, and worked with a lot of bodybuilders and powerlifters I did multiple internships with him, and for about a year and a half, I moved out to Ohio to work with him and literally went room to room with him with patients. So I learned a lot about actually how the medical process works as well, and then seeing the complexity of how to try to work all of this stuff in. So I think that gave me a lot of kind of like, you know, scope or perspective where, you know, classically as an alternative health practitioner or a complementary practitioner, there's a lot of aggravation toward the kind of medical system and the way that things work. And now it's more of like a, I understand how it works and where some of the challenges are with this. And rather than just being somebody who's, uh, you know, more resistant toward those things is trying to figure out how I can assist in the process and, and improving the flow of things so that people can get the best rounded care as they possibly can. So um, yeah. that took me into nutrition and so forth too. So there's a, there's a lot more to it, but that's kind of like how my my path has been.
0: Well, I mean, just starting there on nutrition, uh, I mean, we've actually just done a, a, a documentary on the gut-brain axis and the gut biota and... Uh, so these are all things that we think therapists need to to learn and understand, and we really thank you for that discussion of all the elements and the ways and the sorts of things that you've had to learn in order to be able to have this uh, more uh, open and broad approach. And, but, and, but just thinking from the therapists, uh, our audience, the, the therapist, like we've got this pain experience and and so much, I mean, Bernie Rossi, my mentor, uh, said, you know, the symptom path to enlightenment. You know the the symptom is just you know shining a light on on something that needs attention, but you also incorporate uh, in the psycho psychological area this hypnotherapeutic work, which is in itself just another form of psychotherapy depending on how it's practiced. But I I know from your work that, that that you do it in a wonderful way. So this idea of the pain, the body pains but also the mental health aspects. Uh, what would you find in the changes that occurred with people as you worked with their pain bodily? What happened to their emotions, their general state of mental health well-being?
2: Well, if we look at back, and I'm sure you've had multiple um, professionals on here talk about pain neuroscience education and the things that we know now about pain, which is we have part of information that's coming from the tissues that goes up to the spinal cord to the brain. And we have the part of the brain that has to process that information. And if that information is deemed threatening, then we're going to have a pain experience. And in that, we have this pain experience that occurs, and that is occurring, kind of grab the awareness of the, of the conscious mind. But then we have that conscious mind's interpretation of that pain. So now we have multiple things happening. We have information that's going, the tissues to the brain, to the parts of the brain that are processing things, and then we have a conscious awareness of that too. So we have multiple things that are going on. When people are caught in this pain, vicious cycle of pain, which is they have the pain itself, right, as a result, response of whatever's going on with the tissues, and then they have uh, history, and they have beliefs, and they have all of these things, memory filters that are processing that information, They've been given multiple diagnoses. We all know how this process goes. Those multiple diagnoses cause more threat and alarm to the person because they don't know what's going on. That causes the dorsal horn to obviously allow more pain information to come in. So they're caught in this loop. The brain is essentially, for the most part, stuck in a pain meeting. And that's uh, what I, I like to use from Adrian Lau's work that we have multiple areas of the brain that are lit up at the same time. And because there's so much activity going on at the same time, the brain is preoccupied with just processing tons of information. And for the most part, those patients are going to present to us as overwhelmed, uh, anxious. They're going to have so much of a flood of emotions. It's not always purely a result of you know, just how the person is. It's the state that the person is in. So I feel in the beginning, when I didn't understand so much about neuroscience, I was just found myself more frustrated toward the person rather than an understanding that that brain is so overwhelmed that, of course, they're going to be short with me. Of course, they're going to want to get through the paperwork real soon. Of course, they're not going to want to talk about this and they want to get on the table. So it's a balancing act as a practitioner is trying to to try to extract the information that I need by also not uh, by helping the person get through the experience, help them understand that I understand what they're talking about. So a lot of this became kind of a fundamental focus for me is how do I calm that brain down as quickly as I possibly can? If I can calm that brain down, make it feel less alarmed and less threatened, I'm going get, to start getting results. I'm going to get more information, you know, the amount that I need now, and we can always get more later and starting the therapeutic process by the time the person walks in the door and sits in the chair before we've even got over to the massage table, before we're even starting to do movement. And that's where these other processes, like just motivational interviewing and what I learned with hypnotherapy and neurolinguistic programming, by using my language to de-threaten that brain. And that's, I think, where things have realized that hypnosis doesn't start when we've done a formal trance. It starts with communication. And if we've been doing that and realizing from a broader sense that that person is already walking in in a hypnotic trance that is not serving them, and that's why they're here, then we're going to dehypnotize them from that state and try to get them into an altered state of awareness where that hypnotic hypnotic trance that we're in is going to be one that's calming and and more receptive to the information that we want to to put into that nervous system.
0: Yes, that that pain-oriented trance, that that
1: discomfort-oriented trance. But Matt, I know you're champing at the bit. I just wanted to make that comment. <laughs> no, 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 I love that uh, that that phrase, pa- the, the brain having a pain meeting. I think that's uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. We've we've got uh, therapists that know a lot about somatic therapy, and they're very aware of the total integration of you know body and brain. When we're dealing with chronic pain. What what are some of the, the highlights from your experience that you can pass on to our psychotherapists when they're dealing with someone who may not be directly about the pain? There might be other issues that they're coming to a psychotherapist for, um, but pain is a, is a major element of their experience.
2: I think that there's a lot of fundamental misunderstanding from patients uh, about their own pain experience about what is actually happening. They're oftentimes coming in almost always, even in 2021, for 20 years now and and talking with people. and, And of course, it's the nature of the work that I do. So I am aware of that, that when people come in, they're looking for mechanical changes or mechanical fixes to their pain. But most people, and we're still at this point where we can't overcome in the industry, that pain is not purely a structural mechanical phenomenon. And um, people are still struggling with that. Because when we look down and, you you know, let's say you step off a curb and roll an ankle and your ankle swells up like a softball, our brain has a really easy time looking down and going, well, yeah, of course, my, you know, I damaged tissue. But when we're dealing with chronic pain, it's not something we can see. But it's something we experience. And oftentimes that feeling of pain is still anchored and grounded into the belief that there is structural damage. So, and we know that this is not the case. And as a therapist, and, and always drawing the line here of where we're talking about acute pain, which is a different animal, I'm talking about chronic pain. Chronic pain is, you know, everything in the body heals in six months. And after that, once the tissue has healed, we're dealing with a nerve sensitivity or a pain issue. We're not dealing with a structural problem. That what we're trying to do is to, dis-anchor, to pull that anchor apart between structural and the perception of threat. And a lot of times, that is where most of the therapeutic value is, is getting that, that person to understand that. And I, I think that does separate therapists who deal predominantly with pain versus therapists who may not. But Mm -hmm. I think everybody to some degree who's working in a context with individuals who have pain should really be aware of what the pain neuroscience teaches, at least from broad strokes to help people understand that. I've literally seen just dramatic changes in some people just with that explanation of teaching them this and having a few slides where I can show them that information.
1: So this is primarily like a a prefrontal, like a reasoning as to what is actually going on to dismiss some of the the pain meeting (laughs) that's going on in the brain.
2: Yeah, and helping them understand that there are certain parts, like for example, we always get this, is that, you know, when somebody has pain, they come in having been dismissed by a lot of practitioners. That person just says that pain is in my head. And I don't even think people really understand what that means. They know what they think it's implying. They're implying that it is a psychological disorder. They're creating the pain. And I always tell people, no, this is a process that is going on in your neurology, and you consciously have thoughts about that, but you are not generating that. Um, That information is happening in the background in your subconscious So that is the part that we're working on when I talk about pain is in the brain because the central processing unit is your brain and it's processing the information from the body. You have thoughts about this and that's important to address as well. You can get aggravated about your pain or you can get frustrated with it or feel hopeless about your pain. And those are things that we need to address. But the problem is still that this operation is running in the background that we need to change. So we certainly don't want your conscious mind to get in the way of changing that information, right? So we need to talk about this from a perspective of consciously understanding, you know, as I sit there and I teach you pain education, but that's only one thing. We still have to deal with the other stuff. I have to deal with the bottom-up information, okay? So I always teach a top-down and a bottom-up information processing because if it doesn't, the wide variety of effects that can occur from therapeutic work, um, based on an assumption of what that that in, that in person might be perceiving when I'm doing something just as simple as a massage, they may be threatened by this, or they may not be threatened by this. I don't know what's going on unless I, you know, pre-frame the therapy and then pull out some of those beliefs and those frames that they have about what it is that I'm doing. And I think it's important to always understand what those presuppositions are before we initiate our therapeutic process.
0: Yeah, I like I like the thing you said before, uh, just that it almost feels like magic, and uh, this goes back, and we talk about it a lot. the 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 natural capacities that we possess, uh, and one of the things we write about, um, and you know, we have it in the new book of course, that I talk about given the opportunity and the appropriate circumstances, the body does prefer to be well and it will move in that direction. And so that um, uh, sometimes it is actually, as you say, the the conscious uh, activity can actually get in the way and sometimes by letting the body do its own Process and and get into its framework, reduce the amount of cortisol, uh, shift the amount of um, nerve sensitivity, and all these things that you're talking about, the body can do well. And this, I imagine, is where then moving into the therapeutic process, and you use hypnotherapy as a as a framework. Uh, th- that enables that process, and do you find do you find everybody needs to do that work, or it's it's uh, it's something that just occurs depending on the feel of the of the particular client? What's your approach there
2: with hypnotherapy? Yeah, I find that for the most part, and this is the part that uh, has really gotten me out podcasting and talking a lot more about it. Is we still see this it stigma associated with mental health professionals and hypnotherapy, and it, it bothers me a lot. Especially in my realm, where you know we we see practitioners for all sorts of different things, and you know when I t- start talking about that kind of realm of things, then people seem to get like somehow, um, I guess that that things just automatically should change. Right? We still have that mindset where if I just know something, things will change. But we all have lots of experiences where that doesn't happen, you know. Like if I just teach you about pain, your pain doesn't go away. You know, you you it changes things. It it opens the doorway for change. But there's still much to be done in that realm. So when I talk about hypnotherapy and how I utilize it in practice, I from a more uh, to reduce guarding or that apprehension that people have toward these processes. Some people are are full on. Hey, let's do it. You know, like no problem. But I would rather just take the framework from hypnosis and start to implement that. And I'll give you a perfect example of how little things make a big difference. When I was taught neuromuscular therapy and soft tissue therapy, what we did is we would be working on an area, gliding with the finger, and I would find an area that was tender. And if I pushed on that area and I said, is that tender? And the person says, yes, it is. The instruction I was taught by my instructor was to say, let me know when that releases. And for year, let me know when that releases. And you can imagine the variety of responses I had to that. Some people would say, it isn't releasing, or uh, that's releasing. And after a while, with my language training, I said, why do we ask this question? It doesn't make sense. So when I started rephrasing that, a simple shift in saying, let me know when you've released that. All of a sudden, that moved and deferred responsibility to the person. Then they would say to me, some people would go, what do you mean when I've released that? And I go, well, you're in there. So then that would obviously lead to the next step, which is, well, how do I do that? Oh, well, simple. Did you notice that when I pushed on an area that felt you know, tender, you had a little bit of an alarm that went in your nervous system, a little bit of sympathetic reaction. It doesn't mean you're holding your breath. It doesn't mean you were feeling your veins popping out of your neck. But what it meant is it got your attention. Yeah. Well, there are subtle changes in your nervous system in which that information is being processed in your brain as to whether or not you feel threatened by that. So what I want you to do is to recognize, look around, you're in the therapist's office. Is pushing on this sensitive area going to hurt you? No. Then take a deep breath, hold your breath, and then give me a sigh uh, and relax. And then when they did that, then I go, what happened to this tender point? And they go, well, now it's not like a two. Great. So now we're starting to develop a conversation and we're starting to move that kind of locus of control so that the person understands that they're really the one that's inducing this therapeutic process. I am applying a stimuli to bring their awareness to something their response to that stimuli creates a loop where they realize that they are in control of the therapy. And that started to change a lot of things just by shifting a little bit of language and it it created magic. And over the years, I've kind of built upon uh, awareness of the things that I ask, the things that I say, and how that triggers not necessarily an immediate change, but opens up a doorway of communication that furthers the therapeutic process.
1: Yeah, that is so beautiful. And in the realm of pain, we often don't feel like we have autonomy. We feel like we're just uh, a hapless victim of the pain. Yes
0: yeah absolutely. yeah Brilliant. this is this is a, a big thing, Matt, I think this uh, mm. this idea that the pain is happening to me rather than happening mm. within me, or I'm a part of the experience mm. with some engagement with which, which you which you've described and and elucidated on so beautifully, Sam. The, yeah. and and just that thought as we're as we're going through, if I'm working as a, uh, as a hypnotherapist and someone's talking about various bits and pieces, uh, what, what are your suggestions about asking them about their pain, the, uh, particularly if you notice them tight or if you notice them holding something or, or having little twinges? Is, is that something that uh, the average therapist really knows what to do with? Or is that something that becomes, again, as you talk about opening doorways for ongoing
2: discussions? yeah, and it does. And we have to there's so many layers that are wrapped around someone's pain experience that we always have the ability to help them in some way. And if we look at, for example, Mark Jensen's work um, out of uh, University of Washington, who writes a lot about chronic pain and hypnosis, he talks about, in particular, one of the things that I found was interesting was the different areas of the brain that are processing and how you can target your uh, your scripts and your interventions to hit those different areas. I found that very, very useful. In particular, thinking about, you know, first of all, of course, how you how they frame the pain, whether they believe there's a structural element or not. Or sometimes there's an ability to finally discriminate sensory information. So for example, some people get to the point where when they have pain in an area, they only feel pain and they never can seem to associate to different sensory input that they have in that area outside of pain. So a lot of times what I'm telling people is, and, and this is where uh, when we get into that is to say, what do you feel in that area? And we start to elicit, I guess, what NLP would call submodalities. What is it sharp? Is it dull ache? What is it in particular? And as we start to delve into that area, we see what that person can come back as. Have they ever really even tried to get into the submodalities of it? And they may not. They may, not. They may just give us a nominalization, a big chunk of word called pain. And what we want to do with that is that's a neurotag in the brain that has lots of pieces to it. And we want to dive in there and start to kind of pull that apart and to understand what that pain experience is made up of. And there are many layers of it. But if we go into the sensory perspective, so forth, and people who do massage therapy know this, that when somebody says, I want you to work on my back because my back hurts... And then when you rub on that, they'll, and they're kind of jerking around a little bit, and you say, well, what's going on there? And they go, well, it, it, that hurts, but it feels good. And you go, well, what does that mean? And they said, it's a good hurt. Ah, so you can hurt, but you could have good hurt. So, you know, hurt, does that mean that I'm harming your back? And they go, no, that's the good kind of hurt. Well, what does that mean? And we have stuff to play with in that realm. So people can discern differences. And I think part of the massage therapy process is we get locked into, again, this process of thinking that we're doing a mechanical thing. But what I'm really doing is helping that patient feel something different and to engage with that area of their body that is painful and feel and and discriminate between different senses. So they might say, well, it doesn't feel like you're getting on the area where the pain is, but I'm working directly on it. And that opens up the door for me. And for example, to teach them that the pain in the area may not be related to the sensory input specifically that I can deliver. It might be coming from outside factors. All right. So, what I'm trying to do is to, again, uh, just put the information out there that as we do things with people, there's so much information to pull apart and to gather with how that person is experiencing what it is that they're experiencing. And we can start to ask quality questions and so forth. to take us into a direction of saying, can I alter the sensory experience of, or the information that the person is processing? Or is this person reacting very much to things in the memory filter part of their brain that says, Oh, I felt that before. I don't wanna do that movement because my back's gonna go out. And I go, well, how do you know that? Because I remember that. So now we have a belief that the past equals the future. So then we can work on that. Um, There are lots of things like this um, that in the process that a therapist, as they start to ask questions, we can start to get information about what areas that we can help people with. And one additional one that I'll put in there is we're dealing with patients with uh, more centralized pain. We're dealing with central sensitization, uh, conditions like fibromyalgia. One of the, the easiest things that a therapist should always recognize is when the person feels threatened just by considering doing something that is a hallmark sign of central sensitization. So if somebody says, you know, I want you to I need to test your forward bending movement and the person goes, "No, no, 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 I'm not doing that." And I go, "Why not?" Cuz that's going to hurt. I'm already hurting just thinking about it. Okay, hold on a second. Listen to what somebody just told you. They're not even doing the movement and they're already starting to feel pain. So if you rehearse that in that person's mind and you can reproduce their pain experience, And we're definitely dealing with the central component of pain. And we can do other things to start shifting that. Um, And we know that by doing mental rehearsal, practicing movements in the mind, or things that are less versions or lateral versions of an exercise, we can start to desensitize the nervous system in a safe environment to help that person with their pain experience.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful fantastic. stuff. I mean, I, I'm just—I mean, there's lovely stuff going on here. There's there's sort of uh, uh, desensitizing. There's memory reconsolidation processes. There's uh, 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 the ventral vagus—you know, do, doing the vagus tone, vagal tone. There's all kinds of things that are going to automatically occur when 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 doing these processes, and that's such a thorough explanation. But there's one other thing that that clients come into the room with, and that's. Kind of what they heard from the doctor, um, yes. and 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 uh, you know, there's so much to know, uh, uh, and so we, there's a lot that anybody, no matter how brilliant, cannot know. But there's sort of a very strong authority position given to doctors, and and I think both sometimes they believe it as well, and they kind of say things sometimes that uh, uh, you've kind of got to push back against that. Uh, or they don't say things. And this is one of the, this is the book that you've got, you know, what what your doctor didn't tell you. Can you just give us a couple of those nuggets there if you can, because that's fascinating.
2: A lot of stuff. Um, And I think that probably the most pervasive problem there is dealing with the issue of structural biomechanics causing pain. Um, And I always try to express to people from the get-go that, you know, we oftentimes think that pain and understanding pain and the science of pain and treating pain is the same as orthopedics. And what I always remind people is these are two completely different fields of study, and they overlap. Because again, when you break a bone, you go see the orthopedic doctor and everything makes sense that you have pain. But things change when you have chronic pain. It's a completely different field, a different animal. And when you have chronic pain and you see a doctor that usually focuses a lot on acute pain, you're going to get acute understandings or information from that health practitioner to try to describe your chronic pain condition. And one of the biggest ones, of course, is you go to the doctor with back pain. If it's not an acute situation with lots of red flags, we see overusage of medical imaging. So everybody gets an MRI or an X-ray, and there's lots of doctors right now trying to stop doctors from doing this and saying, stop running all these MRIs and x-rays on people that, that don't need it, and there's no medical reason to do it, because it's causing a situation of overdiagnosis. So now you've got somebody with, let's say, back pain because they had an episode of bending over or whatever, um, and maybe they're under a lot of stress at work and you know anxiety, et cetera, and they're already kind of in this what we call suggestible state, because of being in there under these circumstances. And the doctor runs that that uh, MRI and says, well, you've got a disc bulge. And okay, fair enough. I think this disc bulge in here is creating stress on your back. And you know, either one direction, it's going to go and say, you, know, you need to go consult a surgeon, which we know where that goes. But the other direction, I think, is also a problem, which is, well, there's nothing you can do about it. Just take it easy. So we went there with a problem A problem was diagnosed, but there's no solution to the problem. So now we leave this void, and this void is whatever that patient has in their head to fill that in with. What does that mean? Does that mean my spine is damaged? What is that person going to do with that information? They may now be uh, lots of activities in their life that they love, that their life is all about, playing golf, playing tennis they may now respond by not doing those things out of fear. And now we've initiated the process of exacerbating the chronic pain cycle with these individuals just by simply that, that process yeah. being left with this void. And these are simple, simple things, but people don't realize how impactful that is and the, and the result of that when a simple, simple discussion about pain and being clear about what that means should have been done on the front end to help that person. And in my world, I oftentimes am starting my work by teaching what should have been taught. And that is so profoundly impactful for people that it blows my mind that just teaching them this, and that's the name of the book. And then I go into all of these different areas to say, what are all these truths, all these half truths that people are taught, posture, We're still obsessed in the therapeutic uh, and social media that posture equals pain. But people don't realize that the research does not support that like at all, that your posture does not have to be perfect to not have pain. You can't look at people's posture any more than you can look at a bunch of x-rays and MRIs and have experts in radiology and, and, and pain look at that MRI and tell you who has pain and who doesn't. Anybody who's you know worth it as a practitioner will tell you, I can't do that. That's not how it works. But that information is not readily available to the public. And I want to talk about that stuff in the book. So I talk about posture. I talk about different types of pain. Uh, basic nociceptive-based pain is different than neurogenic pain and nosoplastic pain. And how you approach these situations is vastly different. And if you don't identify these things, you're at worst not going to be helpful to someone. Um, Worst case scenario, I should say, a best case scenario, not helpful. Worst case scenario, you make them worse and you drive them further down the chronic pain pathway. So the book was meant to be educational, to say, this is all the stuff when I go out and dig into the research. And what does it say? And to to kind of put that into a place where people can read and get all of that information, hopefully in one place to kind of like kickstart their, their awareness that, You thought that you had tried everything and you thought that all of this, we have it. And I want to do this and blow the doors open. And so there's so much that you didn't know that is uh, available to you to help you with your situation.
1: Wow. So that, that sounds like it's bringing a lot of hope, filling in those gaps. The book is called Why Didn't My Doctor Tell Me That? And this is available from your website. We'll point people to it.
2: Yeah. If you go to the website at releasemuscletherapy.com and you just scroll down, you'll see an area. And I like to put all the available updated information in, in just one kind of free membership area. And you can download eBooks and, and get a bunch of information in there.
1: Fantastic. Well, Sam, we'll wrap it up. Uh, any Any final words to our listeners?
2: I will push, push, push pain education. The more you know about pain is the first thing to start with. I mean, out of all the things that I talked about, there's a lot of things that you can do and delve into. Uh, the more you understand about the metaphilosophy of pain and how all what all the research is showing right now, there are so many options to help people. And just listening, peeling apart their experience and helping them with whatever you can help them with is going to be just huge.
1: Wonderful! Totally endorse um, that.
2: <laughs> and and we have
0: some fabulous articles uh, in the Science of Psychotherapy talking about that. Uh, we've got uh, my wife's fabulous article on the sleep and pain research, and mm. uh, so there's some great resources there. And of course, at Sam's uh, website, everybody, where we'll have the links. Everybody, go learn stuff, learn about stuff, uh, Absolutely. be uh, be less driven by the outside and more adventurous and and um,
1: discovering on the inside. Beautiful. Sam Visnick, thank you so much for being here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, guys.
1: Yeah, it's been wonderful.
2: Oh, uh, that was great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Susie, Susie will
0: love to hear this one. Uh, <laughs> she, she just... Is so she gets so excited about people who know what we're talking about, and uh, Sam, yeah. Sam knows what he's talking about. Uh, I was very that was exciting. I you
1: know to- one of the one of the things that I was so excited about uh, just listening to Sam's self education and and formal education. It just you know he wanted to know about the larger context. He wanted to know about the broader scopes and than he had known. And he's just a great case study on what we all should be doing in our fields in mental health mm-hmm. in digging into all of the different disciplines to know a little bit about everything and to yeah. start applying that knowledge, get out of that broad base of knowledge.
0: Yeah, and when we say self-education, we're not, not talking about enthusiastic Google searches. No. Um, no. <laughs> you know, we're talking about uh, you know, professional development, going to courses, yeah. studying with the masters. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, doing stuff. So uh, he's, he's a great example of that. And uh, our, our, our formal education is just the start. Um, yeah. He's, he's yeah. a great example. Yeah. So yeah. Oh. Go, go, go look at his book, go get his stuff and, <laughs> and have a look at the work he does. And if you're in California, go see him, which is even yeah. better.
1: Absolutely. Oh, and, and he's the phrase uh, "pain meeting." Your brain is having a pain meeting. I'm I'm gonna use that one. That's that's classic. yeah.
0: Because some people have had that pain meeting for like years, <laughs> and 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 we we're laughing about it. But yeah, it's a really serious thing, and yeah. and uh, it's a great way of of lightening up that really dramatic thing of chronic pain where you're just your brain is met out.
1: You know? Yeah. So yeah, beautiful. Anyway, great, uh, great to come across, uh, Sam. Please check him out. We'll have uh, links in the show notes. Thank you once again, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Once again, if you do want to support us, jump across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net, become a paid subscriber. You'll help us pay the rent. That would be much appreciated. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and we will catch you next time. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.